0: I think one of the most useful ways for us Americans to figure out how to solve some of our nation's problems is to look at how other nations deal with their own issues. Let's use the Netherlands as our vantage point right now as we check in with Jonathan Grobert. Jonathan is an American journalist who's been living in the Netherlands now for more than 20 years. He's married and raising a family there, and until recently, he hosted programs on Radio Netherlands. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Rick. What's happening lately in the Netherlands, from your perspective? Probably the most
1: important thing to happen in the country were the elections last September. A lot of people characterize this as getting back to the way things used to be, because the previous government was the most right-wing governments that the Netherlands had seen since the end of the Second World War. It was a two right-wing parties. One was an economically conservative party, one was socially conservative, and then there was the Freedom Party, which is considered by many to be an extreme right-wing anti-Islamic party. They weren't officially in government. They were sort of, had agreed tacitly to vote with the government all along. And what happened was, is the three parties needed to agree on serious austerity measures in order to make lots and lots of cuts. This is what the, the prime minister wanted. And uh, they had sequestered themselves in a little house and were there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And at the very end of it, the very end of those talks, just as there was light at the end of the tunnel and they were about to come to an agreement, gert Wilders, the, the head of the Freedom Party, just pulled out of the talks pulled his government support from the other two parties. The government fell, and before you knew it, we had elections again, snap elections again in September. And what's really great about this, Rick, is people say it's back to business because it's the Labour Party, together with the VVD Party, that's, again, the fiscal conservatives, formed yet another government. This government is going to have to have a lot of tolerance of each other because they're really quite opposite thinkers. But they've agreed that there are going to be a lot of cuts. It's going to be tremendous fiscal conservatism, and this is all in the name of getting the Netherlands back on the road to recovery.
0: But this is a more centrist or liberal coalition that's agreeing that austerity is necessary.
1: They're going to have to be centrist because right. the Labour Party is centre-left. The VVD is considered to be centre-right, although when it comes to business and fiscal issues, they're very far to the right. Okay. But this is the way it works in Europe because you have to have a lot of marriages of convenience. That's the way you form governments. Give us a little um, primer on how parliamentary governments work in Europe. The way most parliamentary governments work in Europe, take the Netherlands, you have a parliament with 150 seats. In order to get a majority, you need to have 76 seats. It's simple math. But almost nobody ever gets 76 seats because there's a large number of parties. In the Netherlands you have nine parties right now and in some countries you have even more. The largest party in the election, the one that has the most seats, gets to form the government, so they get to go around to ask the other parties whether or not they want to join them, and you know also reject other parties and say, we're absolutely not going to form a government with you. Now, in the case of the Netherlands' last election, the second largest party was the Labour Party, and frankly, mathematically, the only party that they were able to form another government. I mean, they could have done it, but they would have needed like four other parties. That's how splintered the vote was. Four other
0: parties. Think of the amount of concessions that they would have to make just to form a government to do that. And now, Jonathan, because of this necessity to compromise, do you have racist groups that actually have a voice in governments, even though they would only have less than 10% of the uh, popular support? The answer to that is yes and no, because it depends
1: upon how willing the other parties are to work with that far-right party, as it were. I'll give you a perfect example. Here in the Netherlands, the last government, the previous government, actually decided that they were going to come up with
0: some kind of compromise construction, and they weren't going to
1: invite the Freedom Party into government. By the way,
0: the the Freedom Party is the anti-Muslim conservative party, right? That's
1: right, the PVV, run by Geert Wilders, he of the Mozart blonde hair. And basically, uh, they decided that they were going to vote as a bloc. So they made an agreement, even though it wasn't a formal agreement. Now, in a country like Belgium, actually, for many, many years running, the largest party in Flanders has been the right-wing extremist Flemish party. And all the other parties in government simply refuse to work with them. They're called a Cordon Sanitaire. And as a result of the fact that, yes, as a result of the fact that even though these guys are the biggest year in, year out, and nobody else wants to work
0: with them, they have been kept out of power in this way. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jonathan Grobert, who's a journalist in the Netherlands. He's the former host of The State We're In on Radio Netherlands. Jonathan, I'd like to just kind of just dip through a lot of issues that we're looking at in Europe from your perspective as a journalist in the Netherlands. First of all... When you think of the European Union economic crisis, is this fundamentally because the demographic makeup of European society has changed? And when you have a a rich and well-educated society, it has less children, therefore less workers and more people living really long. And they simply cannot uh, maintain the promises they made previous generations for retirement and all of their um, cradle-to-grave kind of security. Well, here's here's the thing is, I don't think the demographic change is as big a problem. Okay, well, that's, that's what I'm curious about, because it seems like you can't have a geriatric society promising all this if you don't have a lot of people working to fund it. Yeah, but that's something that's still down the road. It's not the cause of what's happening now,
1: in my personal opinion. I'm so glad you asked me this, Rick, because now I get to go in my soapbox, because I predicted this when they first introduced the euro, not because I was against the euro, but because I saw the tremendous mistakes that they were making by, for example, letting in countries like Greece and Portugal and other countries that were simply not ready to be in the euro and that were going to make it unstable simply because anybody with eyes could see that they were cooking the books. Right. And that is the reason why this is happening. Not because the European economic model is simply not going to work, Hmm. but simply because They were cooking the books and you didn't have a central bank with enough control over the individual economies in the same way the Fed has control over each and every state. The Fed has much
0: more central power. Okay, so then what you're saying is that countries like Greece got in by having false kind of affluence and they weren't really meriting to be on board with Germany and France. That's right. And
1: and the big problem with that is because you don't have
0: real controls over the economy from the central bank or from the, the various governments. Are you saying that they've either got to be individual countries or really integrated completely and they're sort of halfway now and it doesn't kind of work? That's exactly it. Uh-huh. If you want to have one currency, then you have to
1: have one economic policy. Right. And that's not what they have right now. They're trying to
0: have it both ways and it's just not going to work.
1: That's exactly it.
0: Is the EU just um, a smarter way for Germany to take over Europe? are you asking me personally yeah i'm asking you personally
1: no (laughs) i don't think it is no i'm going to agree with the nobel prize committee who gave the eu the peace prize a lot of people poo-pooed that but i agree with it the primary purpose of the european union was to keep the peace these are countries that have been at each other's throats since the history of written time Uh, it's just been one increasingly large war after another and I think everybody saw at the very beginning uh, when they first created the economic coal and steel union that the point of bringing in Germany into a union with France was to keep the peace, to keep people from shooting at each other. That if people rely upon each other, basically the French know that if the Germans go down economically, they go down too, and vice versa. Hmm. And that is the point of the EU, and it has worked until this
0: point. Nobody is shooting at anybody So people can laugh and complain and ridicule the European Union and all sorts of different reasons, but the fundamental triumph of the European Union is the fact that, as the founders envisioned way back in the late 1940s, you would interweave the economies, especially of Germany and France, so it would be inconceivable that the continent would go to war again. You have said that exactly correctly, and I think it's working. If you're a Dutch person, and you've lived there for over 20 years, when you think about the good things about the European Union, how does it on the other hand, threaten Dutch identity? Is everybody becoming just uh, mixed in altogether? Or are the beautiful idiosyncrasies of the cultures in Europe, are they still strong?
1: When you hear that the European Union is threatening cultural identities, all you have to do is travel around Europe to see how ridiculous that claim is. I mean, the Dutch are still very Dutch, and they still like their raw herring. And uh, what really does a Dutch person have in common or a Finnish person have in common with uh, a Greek person or a Portuguese person, other than those things that make us human and the fact that they share a lot of products because they're in an economic union? Truth be told, character-wise, not a lot.
0: Each country still very much has its own individual character. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Jonathan Grobert. Jonathan and his family have lived in the Netherlands for over 20 years. He's a journalist, former host of The State We're In on Radio Netherlands. Jonathan, the prohibition against marijuana is a big issue in the United States, and each year different states are voting on whether it should be okay for medical use or or decriminalized or out-and-out legalized, taxed, and regulated. The Netherlands are famously progressive on marijuana laws. What's the latest on the marijuana situation in the Netherlands? Well, you know, it's been confusing here for the last few years because the previous
1: government decided they were going to really tighten up on it. They were going to make it impossible for tourists to get weed or hashish in coffee shops. They were going to make sure that you had to be local, that you had to have a specialized card, that you had to show that you lived locally. As a result of that, everything that everybody predicted would happen, happened. That is to say, uh, the street dealer made a reappearance after years of being, you know, not uh, on the Dutch streets. Um, they even found one guy who was in Maastricht, which is very close to Belgium, to Germany. So a lot of Germans and Belgians go there to buy their pot and their weed. And uh, they said, hey, where did you get your pot and your weed? And he said, oh, I just walked down the street to the coffee shop and I bought it there and now I'm selling it to the Belgians and the Germans. Of course, that guy got arrested the next day, but it happened. You well, know? Because
0: because the, the new weed uh, card let only locals buy marijuana from the coffee shops. That's exactly right. The
1: idea was to make it for the locals only. Well, uh, the new government that got voted into office in September has decided that they're going to do away with the weed card, that it's not a success, even though they're not going to come right out and say that, but that people are going to have to go in and show their ID in order to buy weed. I guess the idea is to make it a little more...
0: Upfront. That's right. They're concerned about people from countries where marijuana is not legal coming in, buying it, and taking it home, because the biggest coffee shops in the Netherlands were the ones near the border. That's exactly right. So... Bottom line, in the future, you'd predict that the coffee shop system for marijuana will be status quo?
1: Yes, but you have to be willing to walk in and show them your passport.
0: So is it worth it to you? I don't know. It might be. (laughs) Well, that's for each person to, to decide on their own what kind of travel thrills they want. Jonathan Gruber, thank you for getting us up to date on the Netherlands, and best wishes in your work as a journalist. You're welcome. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.